Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a Holiday Clips episode featuring curator Shania L. Harris. Harris is the curator of Emma Amos' Color Odyssey, a retrospective of Amos' career that's now at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's on view there through January 17th, 2022. Amos was important in bringing second-wave feminism into American art, in addressing many American and art histories within her work, and in making art that synthesized her interest in printmaking, weaving, and painting. The show's excellent catalog was published by the Georgia Museum of Art, where the show originated. It's available from IndieBound and Amazon for about 40 bucks. Don't miss this one. It's really good. Shania Harris, after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents I Don't Know You Like That, The Bodywork of Hospitality. Organized by Sylvie Fortin, Bemis Center 2019-2021 Curator-in-Residence, this ambitious group exhibition brings together the works of 18 international artists to explore corporeal hospitality. Hospitality is usually considered a philosophical concept with juridical implications, an ethical concern, or a social-political practice. This group exhibition shifts the focus to consider the stealth work of hospitality on our conceptual, physical, political, and historical understanding of bodies. In the process, it reveals a storied genealogy that points to the extractive intersection of race, gender, class, religion, and value. I Don't Know You Like That, the body work of hospitality, excavates this legacy and imagines other more-than-human hospitable modalities. The public is invited to an opening reception on December 9th at 6 p.m. Central Time with 14 and a number of exhibiting artists. An artist panel and performance will take place on December 11th at 2 p.m. Central Time. Exhibiting artists Ingrid Bachman, Jean-Charles Dukayak, and Bridget Moser will be in conversation with curator Sylvie Fortin about their artistic practice and the work on view. Following the panel discussion, Jean-Charles Dukayak will perform talk, which recombines several works in the exhibition into new living constellations. The panel discussion and performance will also stream online at twitch.tv slash Center. Find additional details, including Bemis Center's COVID safety policy and requirements for in-person attendance, and RSVP at bemiscenter.org slash events. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present, at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction. From the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents MFAH plus U equals a dynamic duo. Discover the duality within the MFAH's major lineup of fall exhibitions and find your duo. Explore the parallels between two of the foremost figures in 20th century art in Calder Picasso. Witness the first exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe's work with a camera in Georgia O'Keeffe Photographer. Unravel juxtapositions in the legacy of the African diaspora through historical and contemporary works in Afro-Atlantic histories. See some of the most significant paintings from the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist movements in Incomparable Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Plan your visit at mfah.org slash dynamicduo.
And we're back. Shania Harris, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. Let's start by talking about the very first painting in your career-spanning exhibition, because I think it's the first painting in the show because you know no one's expecting it. It's a painting called Shepherd's Path. It's from 1958. In what is it rooted and how is it unlike what we know know Amos for? Let, Let me just kind of preface it by saying that I felt that that particular work was one of the most important and kind of showing a bit of irony in what people expect to see from Amos. And by that, I mean, most people who have been exposed to her work or seen other examples of her work, seeing her as a figurative artist, always depicting, you know, maybe self-portraits or work showing lots of figures. And, you know, when I discovered in researching Amos that she wanted to be an abstract expressionist painter earlier in her career, I was like shocked. But then as time went on, I could see where it wasn't really that far-fetched a notion. She painted that particular work while she was studying in London. She did her undergraduate work at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And at the latter part of her undergraduate time there, they have a study abroad component like a lot of, you know, a lot of universities do. And she chose this London Central School of Art to study printmaking, of all things. But while she was there, she also saw a lot of ironically, American abstract painters that were exhibiting in London at the time at museums and galleries. And as she became fascinated and started to, you know, create works that were abstracting nature. So that even though she was experimenting with, in you know, in the printmaking realm, which throughout her career later on was a significant portion of it, she still kind of eschewed the, the figure. She was you know, working in an abstract manner. So I think that that was kind of a formative period for her, not only in terms of her concept of abstraction later developed into kind of moving back into a figurative mode, but also even how she is using color to create mood and, you know, how that kind of changed over time. And so she was, you know, she was playing with a lot of things at that point, but there's a few works that we've identified that came out of that period that she was working in London or studying in London, I should say. But this was one example that was still actually owned by one of, you know, one of her children. So I, I thought it was it was great. The, the reference to Shepherd's Path uh, was apparently where she was staying at the time that she was in London. So it kind of gives us a, some geography around her, her time in London. Throughout the show, I think visitors we'll see and readers of the catalog will see that she was comfortable with abstract languages and and with abstraction. And I I think that that being the first painting in the show from 1958 uh, really sets that up wonderfully. The one, the one, you know, it's also a very Helen Frankenthaler-ish painting. And it's, it was interesting to me how quickly she was done with Frankenthaler. (laughs) Let's back up a little bit and do a quick hit of Amos biography. She was from Georgia. She grew up in a a comfortably middle-class family. How did she get from being a pharmacist's daughter to being an artist? Well, her father studied in Ohio himself. He went to school at Wilberforce, and then later he studied in Cincinnati to receive his pharmacy degree. So he was very influential in getting Amos to think about Ohio or, you know, a college in Ohio to study, perceived as much more tolerant or progressive compared to Georgia or Southern universities that, you know, you would expect that she probably would have attended, particularly like historically black colleges. And so Amos decided on Antioch. And it's interesting because in the research process for the exhibition, I stumbled upon or and then I found out it was later published by, I guess, kind of an alumni arm of, of Antioch her senior essay, <laughs> where she has to talk about, you know, what she what she learned, you know, in being a student and what was important about being a student at Antioch and, you know, all of her feelings. And I remember, like, having to write, you know, as an undergraduate, you know, write a very serious, 
you know, thesis and you're both trying to sound professional, but at the same time, you're still trying to figure out what language to use to describe a little bit more about yourself. And she essentially felt that she was still trying to discover who she was as an artist. She knew that she wanted to be an artist when she got there, but she had to do like a series of internships and in different fields and kind of like almost like a, you know, work experience every summer in different major cities. But it always ended up where, you know, she knew that, you know, she wanted to refine herself as an artist. And so Antioch allowed her to have the freedom to do that and not necessarily have to become a doctor or like her father, a pharmacist um, or a lawyer. Although she did have a brief period where she was like, well, maybe I need to go back home and help with the family business. You know, this this art thing is kind of hard. <laughs> but, you know, she still persisted even after she, I mean, she just as an, another bit of a note, she does return to Atlanta after she graduates, but she only stays there probably less than a year. And thing that she uh, mentioned later on in the years was that her first exhibition was in Atlanta. It wasn't in New York. And her gallerist uh, was Judith Alexander, who owned the New Arts Gallery in Atlanta, which was kind of a startup contemporary or kind of a, a major startup to the kind of the contemporary art scene at that time. And she loved being represented by that gallery, even in that brief period. I think she might have had some contact even after she left to go to New York. But I mean, even in the spite of that, she could see that there was a limitation just being in Atlanta as a Black artist trying to, you know, start her career. But, you know, Atlanta was ironically the place that she probably remembered that exhibition the best. And those were the, that was an exhibition that showed a lot of her abstract etchings that she produced while she was both in London and um, perhaps a little bit at Antioch, but mainly in London. But but Atlanta was always a place of history, not just personal history, but, you know, it really gave her a sense of place as, as an American. And that was something that I saw even overshadowing her later years where no matter how long she had been in New York, since 1960, she had been in New York. And even to the point where she began to lose her memory a little bit more rapidly, she'd always mention Georgia. She'd always mention Atlanta, which was, she'd say, I, w- I wish I could go back home. I wish I could, I could see Atlanta again. And it was kind of touching, you know, when I, I mean, I wasn't expecting her to say that. But, you know, somehow Atlanta always colored or that period of growing up in Atlanta colored her sense of identity, but also her sense of herself as an artist. You mentioned earlier how important printmaking was to Amos right from the start. And you have several of the etchings you mentioned a moment ago from the late 50s, early 60s in the exhibition. I want to raise two works that you put together in the catalog, and I presume in the show, as usual, we're taping before the show is up. One is a a print called Inside Outside from 1966, and the other is an outstanding painting from the same year called First Avenue Window. Is this a good example of how she began bouncing ideas back and forth between printmaking and painting and how they informed each other? Yeah, I think it is. One in an early interview that Amos did, she talked about how printmaking was the way in which she often learned about color and color mixing rather than painting being the primary mode. So she found printmaking to be very liberating, you know, as an artistic practice for her. And that's where she begins to experiment with color, which kind of surprised me because she had a, such a, a large trove of paintings that she did in the 60s in a probably within a, a year period that I just assumed. But she's like, no, those early printmaking opportunities. When she came to New York, she worked with Leterio Calipay's printmaking studio, and then later with Robert Blackburn, probably you know the more notable time period for her as time went on. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, that she that was a space in which she felt that she could really elevate her etchings, even though she was actually teaching and working in those spaces in between. You know, that was what she was doing when she did start to paint. 
a little bit more aggressively, that was when she was working on her master's degree at New York University. And even in those early paintings that often get well publicized and, you know, lots of exhibitions and we have examples in our exhibition, she talked a lot, you know, I've seen reference where she's talked a lot about how color and that sensibility around color was her preoccupation. So I think that there was like a fusion of the two. She was mixing, you know, working in different media and she could never quite separate herself and say, I'm just going to be a painter. I'm just going to be a printmaker. She always found, or, or a textile artist, you know, so she was enmeshed in all of those worlds. Where do you think First Avenue window comes from art historically? Because there's clearly a window there, which is thoroughly representational, but there are also really abstract elements, especially on the right lower right-hand side of the painting. I suspect strongly she has seen and knows of Ellsworth Kelly's red-green-blue paintings, which, which Kelly begins in the late 50s, early 60s, because she seems to be addressing them. What, what do you see her as putting together here, especially that will become important to her later on? One of the things that I always say about, like a lot of the paintings that I've seen, like the 60s paintings and some of her 90s paintings, even though they seem kind of divergent, they, in many ways they're not. I always like to look at how she compresses the sense of 3D space, and then she kind of compresses it in such a way that, you know, she's flattening the picture plane. So you're looking at what appears to be, I mean, it might be a clock or a uh, a record player, you know, or something in that window, but it's a compression. So you, you're you not getting that sense of depth, but you there's a, enough of a suggestion of it that you know that you're entering into or looking out of a space. And you see that with a lot of her works that were done, like her falling works in the 90s, where you know, you can see this, you're not, you know, you're just kind of getting a flattened version of what is a much larger universe of, of objects and interiors or exteriors, if you will. And, you know, that kind of fracturing and flattening of the picture plane. And, you know, I always think of a lot of the European artists that she might've been looking at, I mean, both early and later, you know, she was a big fan of Matisse. She was a big fan of Picasso, Picasso was probably, you know, you'll see in later works that in some, in fact, that are in the exhibition that, you know, she really, I mean, just, you know, was highly enamored with these artists and what techniques they use for pulling in the viewer. And so she's experimenting a lot during this phase of, you know, how to manipulate spaces and also objects or people in spaces. And then that has a, a, a social element um, that becomes added to it or a suggestion of social content in other works that she produced is in the 60s where, you know, whether it be the insertion of women's bodies or the exclusion or kind of fracturing of women's bodies that you see in some of the works that, you know, particularly her paintings in the 60s while she was with Spiral. Amos is primarily a, a painter and printmaker from, from, you know, 58 to about 1982, at which point she starts making the, the, the textile works that are, that are so spectacular. In those years, in the 60s and 70s, before she's making textiles, what is she most interested in as a painter? I would think that in the 60s, you know, she was interested in, of course, I mean, it's very obvious that she was interested in color. She was interested in form and playing with form, formal qualities she could produce. But just to kind of back up a little bit, actually, Amos was, and this is one of the things I've hoped to underscore with the exhibition, although we don't have some of her earlier, probably more commercially driven works, is that she was always a textile artist. If you think about her career with noted textile you know, textile artist Dorothy Leaves, you know, and she worked as a weaver and artist with her, you know, designing things like, like, again, for a more commercial setting, like carpets and upholstery and different things for Bigelow Sanford, which was uh, supplied for hotels and other spaces. But she was always a textile artist. I think what changed in the 80s is that she did it more for kind of a fine arts, you know, like she drifted more toward incorporating it into 
her regular practice in fine arts related spaces. So, but it was always creeping up into, in her works. If it doesn't show up in terms of pattern and decoration that are visible in her paintings, it, in some of her early printmaking work, she still, she actually does incorporate cloth or fragments of her weavings that she did in, you know, because she was actually teaching weaving in the 70s. As early as 1971. Yeah, yeah. So she was always she was always weaving. It was just that she felt that, particularly as a woman artist, that, you know, weaving was always viewed as kind of taboo or anything in the textile dimension was viewed as kind of non-fine arts, you know, this kind of high and low division in the arts. And so she was always a little bit, you know, hand, she felt handicapped that she couldn't incorporate textiles more in order to be taken seriously. But then at a certain point, she was like, well, nobody's looking at my paintings anyway. <laughs> I might as well just do what I want to do. And so she started to experiment more with how she could fuse various media. And then by the 70s, the late 70s, she was doing it a little bit more. But by the early 80s, she really had gone pretty much full-blown into incorporating textiles into larger paintings um, that we're probably more familiar with seeing maybe reproduced um, or we'll see in the exhibition. Yeah, the more the more media she embraces at any one time, the more exciting the work. And I think that runs runs through the through the whole show. You mentioned that she begins to bring textiles into the paintings in the 70s. A great example from the show is India and Afghan from 1977, India being um, Amos's daughter. How does she use, if not foreground and almost dwell on textiles in that painting? Well, with that painting, you know, you have India, the, as you mentioned, her daughter, who's kind of sitting on a bench, you know, and has a little Snoopy doll nearby. And, you know, and you, you have all of these kind of references that are both kind of remind you of Amos's own history itself. I mean, you have the Afghan um, as a suggestion of a kind of textile kind of weaving process. Then you have the Persian rug on the floor that kind of reminds us of even her own designs. I mean, it, it wasn't one of her designs, but, it, you know, just her involvement in the decorate, you know, the decorative aspects of weaving and textiles. And then I always like to think about individuals, um, even her daughter herself, as being something of a material, you know, I mean, even though she's a, you know, a flesh and blood or suggestion of a flesh and blood person that Amos kind of integrated the entire environment that everything had a look and also had a feel and color to it. You know, she had some printmaking works that were produced a few years later. And I always in intimate to people that not only is she suggesting pattern just through the process of the, you know, creating it with the, you know, the texture of the paper the texture she's creating through kind of the cross hatching that you see in the image, but even the skin of the person, you can almost, you know, you feel like it has a texture, just like a piece of cloth. And so Amos is always intimating about texture, even, you know, or that things are, are real, that she wants you to feel them just as much as she wants you to see them with your, your eyes. She wants you to feel them with your eyes as well. Maybe the warmth of a, of, of the subject that she's that she's depicting. The other thing that's happening in that the, on the year that she produces that work is that she's working as on a kind of almost PBS WGBH in Boston's um, public broadcasting stations uh, show show of hands. And her co-host was Beth Gutchen, who was a, also a textile artist. So there's this way in which you know, she's bringing all of her experiences together into a work like that. You know, being a mother, having to kind of divide her time between traveling to Boston, commuting to Boston to tape the show. She was still, you know, dabbling with teaching part time, but then she was raising her family, you know, trying to develop her, you know, artistic career. So in 1977, that's actually the, the first year that she does the Show of Hands series. And it was about 13 episodes 
it wasn't a very long series, but I, I got a chance to see a, a few episodes of that show. And, you know, you can see that she's, you know, they're, they're involved in a, a variety of craft projects with her co-hosts. And I mean, it's like she was in heaven being around textiles and weaving and teaching. And it, it's a, a, a totally different picture of her that you would expect. You know, you expect to see her with a paintbrush in her hand, but, you know, she's talking about, you know, cloth and how excited she is about, you know, all these different things she can do with with all these craft-related projects. And so I think that that painting, it shows just kind of the jubilation of, you know, of her being able to integrate all of those things into her into her work. But the irony is that a painting like that back in those days wouldn't have been very popular for Amy. She would have probably hidden that painting from anyone to see it. <laughs> you know, there are two other things about that painting I, I, I related to that painting I want to raise. One, is she still working for Sesame Street in the years when she's working on this painting of her daughter? She would have weaned off of Sesame Street. She pretty much ended the term with Sesame Street around, I think, 1975. But again, that's a good point that she was also an illustrator for Sesame Street for some time. And we found a few issues of Sesame Street that actually, it was not reproduced in the catalog, that depicted her kids. So apparently her kids were models for some of the photographs of children that were in the Sesame Street magazine. Um, in the 70s, probably around between 72 and 74, you know, there were pictures of India sitting at a little table playing or sun, you know, sitting on a block, you know, one of those huge, you know, blocks that had a letter or number on it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's quite cute. You know, the kids came everywhere. You know, they, you know, they were models for her paintings. They were models for Sesame Street. You know, maybe they might have appeared in another illustration that we haven't identified yet. Yeah, I mean, it was all inclusive. And I I think that that aspect of her as an artist is really important because we often tend to think about the finished work of an artist in a, you know, like kind of a high minded art, fine art sense. And we forget about all the different influences that begin to accumulate that eventually will get that artist to the works that we often laud in museums and galleries and the processes or the, whether they be psychological or mechanical that got them to that point. And so I, I, I love to look at like a lot of those earlier, maybe whether it be an illustration or an early painting and see how she moves across different media and across time and says, hmm, I'm going to try this again, or maybe I can, you know, I can turn this around and I can use something that I, I did in an earlier phase. It's also a multi-generational painting in a way in that there is this probably not new Afghan in the painting and India isn't just the name of Amos's daughter. India is the name of Amos's mother. Yes. And the only regret that I have with my exhibition is that I didn't have the pleasure of bringing in more works that depicted Amos's, like in a more explicit manner, I should say, depicting Amos's family, you know, just kind of a little bit of background. Her mother was a teacher and also a great community activist, apparently, in Atlanta. I mentioned earlier that her father was educated in Ohio, but her mother was educated in Atlanta, Atlanta University. You know, just in doing a little bit of research, you know, I can find, I found some early, you know, newspaper articles where you know, she might have been, her mother was involved in a lot of, you know, community-oriented work around Atlanta University. They interacted with a lot of notable historical figures. They lived near them in in Atlanta. And so she, it's true that this whole idea of history and, and staying in this connectedness to history through, you know, how the naming of for example, her daughter, or even her own name. She's named after her own grandmother, Emma Holmes. And so it's kind of, I mean, it's again, a, wo- a thing that's kind of, if you will, woven into her work throughout is the sense of what uh, Lisa, uh, scholar Lisa Farrington describes as a family romance that Amos seemed to have, you know, just across the board, that she couldn't divorce herself from 
all the types of family that she accumulated over time, whether it be her biological family or her family developed through her interactions in New York and her friendships and so forth. So, And as we'll talk about in a minute, there are other families whose family stories surface in her work as well. In 1982, as we mentioned a moment ago, she starts making and exhibiting these handwoven textile works. The first one in the exhibition is out in front from the collection of the MIA in Minneapolis. It was also in Anna Katz's great pattern and decoration show at MOCA in 2019. What does this pivot to or or broader embrace of textile allow her to begin to do in the work? How does she take advantage of, of the new medium? Well, just to kind of begin with, um, a lot of commentary about Amos in the past generally tended to focus on fabric that maybe had African origins or you know, maybe a connection to like, you know, maybe her the borders of her paintings. What I like about the earlier work is it kind of debunks that that's, you know, the extent of textiles. Most of the early works, or if not all, I should say, were an incorporation of maybe some textiles that might have been commercially produced, but largely her own weavings. So again, she's had a lot of experience weaving textiles in her early career, working under people like Dorothy Leibs, Balso, of course, you know, she was teaching at Threadbare. And so she had a lot of scrap material, I'm sure. I mean, I don't even have to, I can only imagine. I mean, she has so much that she could only go so far with, you know, in terms of just weaving just independently without any purpose for it. So what she began to do is she started taking weavings that she had from the past and maybe even a few that she did simultaneously in producing the work. And she began to kind of, I don't want to say recycle, that doesn't sound right, but reuse <laughs> or reappropriate into into her own, in, you know, I mean, into unique works. And of course, they're very colorful there's kind of this interplay or suggestion of, for example, in this work of both shadow and, you know, a positive space, negative space. And I, I recall hearing an interview with Amos where she talks about how, you know, like everyone often focuses on filling up a space or that you, you have to fill every space and that it's all about positive and positive states, but she's like, you know, let's not forget about what negative space does. Let's not forget about the absence of filling up every area, <laughs> what that can do, and that that actually becomes a part of the composition. And so I see with the work like out in front, just as much as the the darker figure that's kind of holding her head or has their hands up raised is, you know, a focal point for a viewer, but so too is the kind of shadowy figure that is in the background in green that, you know, is suggestive of almost like a negative or almost like a shadowy presence back there, that that populates the work as well, as well as, you know, the other, you know, areas of color that, you know, might suggest a terrain or pattern that, you know, dangles. The island of Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's I, I think that's Manhattan between the two figures in, in Out in Front. So, I mean, it does make you wonder. I mean, she the also the early 80s was a period that she wanted to focus a lot on athletic and moving bodies. I let me let me stop you there for a second, because I wanted to ask you about that. So as she as she pivots to these textiles, she is showing first athletes, track athletes, basketball players, sprinters. And then as the years go go on, she expands her interest in bodies in motion, if you will, to include uh, swimmers and gymnasts um, and the like. Why athletes, uh, dot, 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 and the rest? And why now? Well, there's a couple of things that were going on with Amos, both aesthetically as well as just, you know, just from anecdotally. Aesthetically, Amos was very interested in the whole notion of movement and how you could produce movement through the use of textiles or the interplay with textiles. In later work, she, you know, suggests movement through kind of an expressionistic painting style, but she really, really wanted to make those textiles move, you know, and she looked at even the canvas, like in canvas or the background canvas as material, 
you know, she didn't look at it as, okay, this is a surface in which I'm working only. It was, there was an interplay between that and any other type of fabric or textile she placed on it. But she didn't want the 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 figures to be seem so static. And, and let me just jump in on that for a quick second. In the paintings of the 70s and early 80s, the figures are almost always static or darn near static. The movement really comes in, that, that sense of figural movement comes in with the textiles. Exactly. And, and it, it's funny because it's probably the opposite of what you would think. And I think that was one of the things that she was very masterful about is insisting that she could create a sense of movement and figuration without necessarily painting. I mean, these were her, you know, there wasn't some paint involved, but very little in these early works. I mean, it was largely just material and maybe a little bit of acrylic paint um, applied to the surface. And, you know, she worked really hard at creating these angles and, you know, like these kind of off-center figures, um, even like the the bottom, fr- you know, the bottom fringes of her, of these like largely textile paintings, you know, she made them irregular. You know, she didn't want them to look like too rectangular or too, too defined because by doing so, she was able to create a sense of movement or a sense of flow, like with the fringes on the bottom, you know, of particularly this painting or this, just this kind of layer that's part from the main layer. She could you know, move the figure for, forward by doing that. I think that that is the thing that really became transformative for her was how she could incorporate something that really she was a part of her past artistically that she wasn't feeling would have as much attention, but that became the thing that provided the attention toward this body of work. Let's talk a little bit about some of the themes and subjects that run throughout the work and across media. One of them is Amos's interest in flags, American flags later on, the Confederate stars and bars. For me, and I'm open to being disagreed with on this, of course, as always, the, the, the first work in the show that seems to address the American flag is American Girl, a print from 1974, which kind of refers to the flag with a field of stripes and a field of star-like squares, if you will continues in works like Redline Drawing of 1981, Horizons 1968, and then later on paintings like Sold from 1994. Why was Amos interested in flags and why does she stick with them across two or three decades? You know, that's one thing that, you know, I never truly got a full sense of why Amos, like it was just kind of a part of her, I would say, artistic subconscious. You know, I mean, it, it's pretty clear, obviously, that she used flags and she had maybe certain intentions with the flag at different periods in her career. But she never said, well, I'm really trying to use the flag all the time because of this one reason or maybe this one influence. I think with American Girl, you know, in 1974, in which the period at which she's producing this, you know, this is in the period of, I mean, we're still largely in the the Black Power period, this kind of reckoning, I mean, in, you know, civil rights movement and a lot of things have happened. And and also this kind of, in the feminist movement, and there's this reckoning with, as an American, I mean, pre-bicentennial, what does it really mean to be American, but also be a woman, also be a person of color against, if you will, the backdrop of this country whose symbol is embodied in the American flag. In studying this particular print, you can see there's this kind of heavy white outline that, you know, goes around her head and kind of through that, that kind of fractures that the flag, if you will, if you wanted to look at the suggestion of the flag. All the, all the way left to right across the entire print. Right. And I'm always fascinated with how Amos places like a female body, and it always seems to kind of interrupt the you you know the, a flag. <laughs> I mean that that a, uh, that a woman's body becomes the interruption of whatever is suggested. Horizons, nineteen sixty eight, same thing. Right, and or I mean, not always female, but in large part female bodies, and that there's this idea about the an exception, or you know, there's no 
you know, one way to kind of look at Americanness that it's constantly being interrupted or fractured by all of these different bodies. And, and in this case, a black woman's body is interrupting this very kind of very generic, you know, flattened, you know, interpretation of what it means to be American. And so that, you know, there's this kind of assertion in the American girl, like the, you know, the very intensity of those, you know, of that, uh, of that, you know, that darkness, you know, around her, you know, both in her hair and just her face. I mean, there's this density that I always tend to think about with a lot of her figures there. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier that with her paintings, there was this, you know, there's this very static feeling and then there's this density when she wants to depict something or, or, or a figure that has importance. She wants to place them solidly there. But, but back to the outline is just during the printmaking process, one of our contributors, Laurel Garber, talks about how it actually took two plates to create this image and that the outline, that white outline is kind of that space in between that's created through this, you know, the, the, the fusing of those things. And so this kind of fracturing and then reassembly, if you will, of a lot of Amos's figures through, and particularly in, in the print, during the printmaking process, I think it has a, a deeper significance is that, you know, that nothing is whole, everything is fractured, and we go about this process, her as an artist in this case, but even in society of bringing things back together again in a new form with a new structure using, you know, pieces and parts from a variety of spaces. And so you see that come up again and again, like even in the painting where she has, a, you know, depicts herself as called um, Equals, which is a very important painting in her career where, you know, it looks like she's, again, interrupting the flag with a lot of different elements, whether it be you know, photo transfer images that replace stars, whether it be her physical body kind of falling through space. You know, there's always this commercial break, <laughs> if you will, that occurs with, with Amos's larger body of work when, you, when she's utilizing the flag. Red Line Drawing 1981 is kind of the key work between the 74 work and, and equals. We'll have images of all of them on, on manpodcast.com. As you noted early on in your last answer, Emma Amos was really interested in issues of the idea of the American nation and questions of race. And the way she probably most consistently addresses America's racial history and present in her work is through the constant, persistent, career-long resistance of binaries. There are very often both white and black figures within individual works. And Amos, unlike other painters or artists, re really insists on ambiguous skin tones often throughout. I think you call her in the catalog, uh, you refer to her as being color conscious within individual works. Why, either biographically or not, was she so color conscious? Well, she's she's remarked in uh, in several interviews, you know, whether written or oral, that in part it was due to her own background. She always talked about how she wasn't just, you know, she didn't view herself as just an African-American. Um, and in fact, that term, you know, bothered her for several years because she felt like, well, I'm not just African-American. I'm Norwegian-American. I'm Native American. I'm, you know, a European. I mean, you know, she she found a lot of wealth in the fact that that she knew what her family heritage was, whether it was, you know, coerced, you know, intermixture, if you will, through the process of enslavement of her ancestors, or whether it was by uh, a mode of choice, even in her own nuclear family with her children and her husband, her husband was a white Jewish man and her children were mixed. And but she was, too. The other thing that Amos does a lot is she plays with her own complexion in, you know, even if she inserts herself in a kind of self-portrait fashion in her works, like she she liked playing with, you know, hey, I'm, you know, a little darker in this image. I'm lighter in this image. You know, she sometimes would show 
images of that were suggestive of her own family and she darkened or lightened their skin um, because she felt like, well, if I look at my own family tree, I mean, everyone's of a different shade. Blackness is not one shade um, and therefore I'm not going to depict it in that way. So even if you are going to say I'm a black artist, I'm not. Blackness is a much broader concept that has social and political implications. But phenotypically speaking, you know, we come with a wide, I mean, a, a wide variety. And I want to explore that. And I, you know, and she thought that it was it was fun to be able to have that flexibility, both as an artist and a thinker when it came to showing the, the you know, intermixture and hybridity in her work. Do you think she and Adrian Piper were looking at each other? Because I think of Adrian Piper's 1981 self-portrait exaggerating my Negroid features and how it seems to pop up in a couple of works in, in, in the show. There's Amos's 1981 preparing for a facelift. Of course, I don't know which work came first. And Amos's 1999 work, Two-Faced. Funny that you say that because I have an image of Two-Faced near me on my desk. And I always think about Adrian Piper uh, whenever I see that image. In fact, there's a we have only that particular impression in our um, exhibition, but there were a few others. And the other one that I've seen by the artist, you know, her skin color was darker. You know, this is more of a peachy, you know, skin color. You're ta- you're talking about Two Face now, yeah. And you know, again, there's this, you know, even within her own self portrait she nuances the whole notion of skin color. And I do think that she was looking at Adrian Piper's work. Amos was very, you know, she didn't, she never expressed a lot of influences. She never, with the exception of maybe a Picasso or Matisse. Yeah, she didn't have to though, right? I mean, they're very, she's she's taking them head on pictorially. You know, she's doing a lot of, I call it sampling. And sometimes she would acknowledge it, you know, publicly and say, oh, yeah, I I was looking at this person's work. I was looking at Leon Golub's work. I was looking at, you know, Lucian Freud's painting. Other times she, you know, she sampled probably, you know, from the standpoint that a lot of artists were working contemporaneously and they were all sampling from each other in some cases, you know, seeing each other's works at different exhibitions. Cole Scott. Yeah, Cole Scott, definitely. You know, I I mean, you can find a variety of references in just about any period of her work. Earlier, you talked about Clifford Still with some of the or or reactions to artists like that in some of her earlier works. Later on, too, Targets from 1992 is kind of having fun with Johns and Still and yeah. And so I think that, you know, I've described her uh, before we got on the call as you know, being a bit picaresque. And I remember that about Amos, like she loved to people watch. <laughs> and she, you know, she would often talk, I mean, we would you know, have these conversations about people and, you know, and different artists, like if I, you know, would, you know, kind of go around with her a little bit, you know, she'd find these things and she like she just liked to play with, you know, different concepts or play with different things that, you know, she saw in in works of art that really inspired her or interested her. So Amos's interest in how race was studied and portrayed in America extends well beyond her own visage and and her own family. It extends to works such as Bootstraps, Clarence Thomas and Ward Connerly, a delightfully acid work about two black conservatives, two black arch conservatives. But it also extends to a kind of immediate response to historical scholarship. In 1997, Annette Gordon-Reed published Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings in American Controversy, and Amos immediately engaged Gordon-Reed's work with her own 1997 great-grandpa Jefferson. Could you describe that work, including how Amos engages Gordon-Reed's research, and then maybe talk about why you think Amos was interested in addressing Gordon Reed's scholarship so immediately, so quickly, so promptly. Basically, with that particular work, Amos, she kind of departs from just making kind of the standard fabric bordered paintings that she was doing at the time. And she kind of creates, a, if you will, a, a woman's skirt and top composed of, 
you know, kind of an African inspired fabric, but in the center of it, there's an image or visage of Thomas Jefferson and a kind of, someone would call it a county fair style <laughs> ribbon, you know, on the head and around or is kind of encircling him. And there's this weird way in which she kind of, you know, like makes Thomas Jefferson be the central, in the center portion, I mean, the center of his face is actually located kind of in, I would say, the pelvic region <laughs> of that. <laughs> Her belly. <laughs> right in the belly, yeah, and, and belly of the of the uh, outfit. You know, he's kind of almost a you know a little fetus growing inside. So you you get that suggestion of okay, he's hoping to there's some of his DNA, if you will, in this particular creation. I think that Amos engaged with it for a variety of reasons. Again, personal, looking at her own you know, mixed background, you know, having ancestors that were a part of, if you will, that planter class that uh, Jefferson belonged to and how they had the ability to take liberties with African, you know, or African descended women and produce children that looked like someone like Amos herself. And at that point, she had, I mean, had for a lifetime had been querying, you know, her own past. And to have a publication and this kind of extended research on a founding father that reflected, you know, probably some of her own feelings about race intermixture, the formation of this country, and even the silencing of a figure like a Sally Hemings historically prior to that point, you know, she wanted to feminize, if you will, this this work by, you know, making it into a dress you know, automatically feminizes it. And in some respects, it's like an apron, you know, the, you know, so that it also suggests this kind of domesticity, but also that servility toward Jefferson. So it's both punning on the fact that, yeah, he's family, but at the same time, I'm a servant. But at the same time, it's both quirky and kind of oddly placed, but it still happened. <laughs> you know, so if you think about having his image in the middle, like that seems kind of quirky, but it still happened. <laughs> it still exists, this 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 work. And so I think that she was finding different ways to kind of experiment with her own work in a way that reflected that slight discomfort in dealing with these harder topics, but also making them accessible. So you know, making a dress that's accessible for people to understand. So I think that when that those revelations came out and actually in successive moments, you know, talking about founding fathers and, you know, these kind of historical suggestions of miscegenation, I think that it gave her an opportunity to kind of transform her own work in, in, in creative ways too. One of the things I hadn't realized or known and certainly not thought about before reading your catalog was how much and the ways in which Amos uses water and pools in her work. Why? Why was she so interested in water and, and swimmers? And then maybe how, how, how do other artists jump off from her interest? In many of the interviews that Amos completed over the years, there was kind of a twofold thing. And the first part of that is during the Olympic, you know, a lot of a lot of Americans became more attuned to the presence of, for example, African-Americans appearing in the Olympic Games in a larger numbers, if you will, in the 1980s and probably early 1990s. And so the presence of kind of a more diverse athletic or picture of athletics inspired some of that. Although Amos was also being imaginative in other instances where she didn't see enough in her estimation of brown bodies that were appearing. And so there was this kind of you know push and pull of seeing maybe the presence of a few, which was exciting, but then not the presence of yet not enough and, you know, kind of allowing her imagination to run wild. Like she has a, a one painting of a diver that, the you know, the diver is a, you know, looks to be a black male figure. But she said it actually was based on, was it Greg Luganis's body? So she said she wanted to imagine what would happen if she made him black. 
she had several diver paintings. And so she would use different athletes to kind of inspire her for some of those paintings. And so that was an example of, you know, how she kind of transposed a black figure onto what was actually a a person that, you know, non-African-American. But the other part of it was personal, that Amos, and, and, and maybe some of these images of divers kind of conjured up a fear that she had of swimming, that she never really knew how to swim. I mean, she loved going to the beach. You know, some of her early paintings, you know, depict her in a bathing suit, or she's talked about how a lot of African-American women in particular that there was the other part of uh, swimming, not just her own fear of swimming, but also, you know, the hair issue. (laughs) Like she didn't swim a lot necessarily or submerge herself in water because that would mess up your hair. And she had those memories of, you know, how hard it was for black women to to really let go and, and submerge themselves in water because they had to worry about their hair afterwards. And so a lot of different sentiments kind of get buried into what you're referring to as the water series. And then another series called the aquarium series that we have two impressions of where she's letting go finally, or she's showing this, these images of people's brown bodies that are letting go of those fears, whether it be, you know, unfounded personal fears or this fear of drowning or just a fear of maybe not excelling in the athletic arena or not appearing. I was I was talking to somebody recently about African-Americans, you know, in swimming, and they talked a lot about how public pools not being accessible or, or in other cases being kind of taken away, even when they were accessible, for example, in public housing, that maybe once African-Americans moved into certain major cities that those public pools were left in disrepair. And so a lot of folks weren't able to learn how to swim because they didn't have a lifeguard or they didn't have those those amenities. You know, there's a lot of social implications when it comes to water and swimming that have racial overtones to them, whether it be segregation of pools that maybe limited people of color from wanting to learn how to swim or be a part of that kind of athletic pursuit to just her own personal fears. So I think that, you know, Amos does a great job of kind of conjuring a lot of, you know, both personal and historical um, sentiments around a lot of these themes of, of swimming in water. I mentioned a little bit earlier that Amos addresses Picasso and Matisse in ways that recall Diebenkorn and de Kooning for me. I mean, she addresses them so smartly, so cleverly, adds so much to their work by her address of them. She treats them as two different artists. Picasso's address of Africa, African art, and Africans was different than Matisse's, and Amos recognized that, and that lives in her work. So there's a work of Amos's such as Muse Picasso from 1997, which takes a hard sideways glance at Picasso, for example, whereas Amos doesn't, you know, is a little gentler and a little more open to addressing Matisse. What difference in their work do you think she identified, or what difference in their address of Africa, African art, and African people do you think she identified? I'm 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 looking at a um, while you're talking I'm looking at another work that uh, is in the exhibition that does kind of distinctly reference Matisse. It's called Malcolm X, Morley, Matisse, and Me, and it's kind of like a play on you know Malcolm Morley, but then she also had a a fascination with Malcolm X and Matisse, and then of course her own you know subjectivity, and it's like this kind of mismatch of different references that includes kind of a silhouetted body that's kind of akin to one of the bodies that might have been in something like the red line drawing that you referenced earlier. Matisse's large reclining nude, yeah. Right, the the blue nude. And then also palm trees in the lower left kind of referencing Matisse and Tahiti. And then um, in the background, there's a very Cole Scottian passage that also could reference the tropics. And then also, you know, this this kind of photographic image that is a part of a body of work that she utilized, you know, photo transfers from her godfather. I think that one of the things that she liked about Matisse beyond just the the colors and the scenery and, you know, that kind of 
kind of almost utopian <laughs> type image he was trying to produce um, in some in some works is this whole idea of you know the ability to kind of fracture and you know kind of reshape and you know contort that you know whether she's contorting her narrative you know she's utilizing that kind of visual contortion you know in works like these like she's able to kind of twist and turn different formal um aspects in order to kind of suit her purposes and i think that that's something that she appreciated more with the matisse when it comes to uh, Picasso and even, you know, another artist that she liked to reference at what as well was Gauguin, she really became, you know, embroiled with their stories or their personal histories, particularly with their relationships with women and, <laughs> or, you know, and the, you know, the kind of scandalous aspects that accompanied that, you know, so I do see like a difference in emphasis you know, when it comes to certain artists, like P Picasso always seems to be a little bit more explicit, you know, like she'll actually show his face, you know, Gauguin, she doesn't show his face, but he, she will show the, the, the face of his mistress, Teamana. I mean, in Muse Picasso, she shows his face just as she shows Jefferson's face in the belly of an apron, whereas surrounded by African figures and references from which Picasso uh, borrowed. And, and as you noted before, the work addressing Jefferson and Hemings also includes Jefferson on in the belly of the dress. Right. And I think that the, the fact that, you know, there's this fracturing that she likes to do, like even with her work, work suit, where she's utilizing the kind of self-portrait of a, a Lucian Freud, but she doesn't use his head, of course. She uses her own head, but she utilizes his a transfer or a fragment of, you know, kind of a collage of his body, but she kind of takes over. So she becomes the mind of that body, you know, and she kind of controls the output of that body by placing her head on top of it. So there's this way in which Amos picks and chooses the, I, I would say, different aspects of emphasis from various artists, whether it be their head or their body or their handiwork, if you if you will, in the terms of their actual creation. You know, she uses it almost as a, like, if you will, her, her, it's a part of her collage aesthetic, where I can use this part of you, I can use that part of you, I can use a piece of myself, and I can create something completely different or upend all of the things that you were about. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that was the uh, the other part of it was, you know, in the 90s that she really kind of struck out toward really taking, a, 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 a as you said, a sideline glance at figures in Western art and, you know, and critiquing them a little bit more directly. And the, her collage aesthetic really made it possible for her to both respect what they were able to offer her as an artist in terms of history and her being a part of that genealogy, but also upending it and questioning it, critiquing it, sometimes actually disregarding it in other cases. Finally, and this is a teeny bit of inside baseball, it's pretty rare in the institutional art world for an institution and a curator to take on the retrospective of an artist at the very end of an artist's life and during that troubling, difficult period when an artist has passed and the artist's estate is kind of organizing itself, both legally and otherwise. Yet you and the museum were willing to do that and did it and pulled it off magnificently. You know, this this your, your catalog is going to be hard for any 2021 show to top, I think. Um, I haven't seen the show yet, but I'm pretty confident it's going to be pretty great. What was it like for you to to work in that kind of you know in, in an extended interstitial period and to put together an oeuvre and the scholarship related to it well one of the benefits that i had and have and i i kind of look at it as almost a you know <laughs> still going on <laughs> rather than past tense i got to know amos and members of her former studio and later her um, her gallerist, Ryan Lee Gallery, at kind of a pivotal point where before she got really, 
you know, ill with, you know, devastating disease of Alzheimer's. And so I was kind of in the pipeline, so to speak, as a, a person that was interested as a curator and scholar in, in Amos's work. So that helped a lot. So people knew that Shania Harris was interested in Amos's work and that might, you know, she might eventually do an exhibition if it'll ever get off the ground. <laughs> because I remember I was looking back through some of my emails when I first started working in Georgia. I said, you know, you know how you kind of reorder your emails and you see, well, who was I talking to back in those early days? You know, you're kind of deleting emails. And literally one of my first emails that I wrote was to Emma Studio. And I said, hi, Emma, I'm I'm working at the Georgia Museum of Art now. I hope you're doing okay. I still want to do <laughs> an exhibition with you at some point. And then it kind of, then, you know, conversations, you know, intermittently happened. And then I discovered, of course, that, you know, she, you know, she had declined considerably since the you know, last time I had spoken with her and her studio assistant at the time, you know, said that they were, you know, kind of intervening more, but that she had a new gallerist that she was working with. And that's how I made the connection with Ryan Lee Gallery. And, you know, as always, my annual trip for probably about five years prior to that and, you know, well into planning of the exhibition, I would always make sure that whenever I went to New York, I was going to stop in and see Emma. And so, you know, I became kind of an old standby. You know, I wasn't really sure how the exhibition was going to develop. I didn't know if, where the funding was going to come from. But I just kind of kept the relationship with her gallery, you know, with her studio, peripherally with her children. I, I never got a chance to get to know them personally as directly, except for some brief moments where I might have interacted, you know, over email or I, I met her son, you know, in person once while she was, you know, still living at her, you know, and working at her Bond Street studio. But, you know, everyone kind of knew of my, <laughs> the girl, well, they used to call me the girl from North Carolina, because I lived in North Carolina for several years, but then I became the girl from Georgia. And so, <laughs> you know, so I think that it really helped that I had started on the project, you know, even if it wasn't concrete yet, earlier, you know, into conceptually, and then you know, as things got a little bit more difficult, we just kept in communication, you know, with the people that had a really supportive, I mean, Ryan Lee has been a really supportive gallery for, and um, really helped, has helped her, her career to like really take off and move her work into different collections. And then her studio assistant, Natalia DeCampos, she was always very, um, very helpful to me and, you know, became you know, a person that I could rely on to kind of keep an update in general on the artist's well-being and so forth until kind of late in the game. So, Shania Harris, thank you. Thank you so much. I was happy to talk to you today. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.